You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, guess what? What is it, Michael? We are at episode number 50. Man, that went by quick. Except for the editing. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. I, I noticed how long. I always like was like, that editing took this exact amount of time. <laughs> yeah, I know, because sometimes you text me during it. <laughs> yeah, which I'm is... like, I'm on hour three of editing. But no, it's been a blast. This has been fun, and I feel like I've learned a ton from our guests. We've had some really good guests. Maybe smarter than us, I don't know. Which I think is good, <laughs> because, I mean, I've learned so much. And I like that we're bringing in people who are really passionate about you know, their topic, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah, and that trend will continue today, right? Absolutely. We have a great guest today. But before we do that, let's talk about teaching today. Mm-hmm. As a social studies educator, were there ever any topics that you felt a little bit uncomfortable doing? As I started getting into the field and thinking about the topics I was going to teach, I started thinking about things like race in ways that I hadn't had to before. Because, you know, a lot of my life it was like, me trying to figure out things about race and what it means to be white. And I really feel like I didn't start that exploration until college. I feel like Mm -hmm. I was kind of um, ignorant and just had not examined what it meant to be a white guy in the United States until college. And then I started asking those questions. But by the time I was starting starting to teach, I'd only been doing it for a short amount of time. And so now all of a sudden I'm in front of, you know, students from all kinds of backgrounds and I'm trying to introduce topics about whether it's it's black history or Chicano history. And, and those are topics that were fairly new to me too. And I kind of questioned myself, like as a white guy, like how do I even start teaching these topics? And so that was hard. I don't know. Did you did you have somewhat similar experiences or do you ever feel like unsure of yourself? As kind yeah, of no. And I, I think a similar experience. I did, um, I did AmeriCorps. I did City Year. And one of the things we often talked about was privilege. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like we had a privilege line uh, in which they'd have questions like, you know, have you ever been followed in a store? And I was always in front. And that was really interesting. And realizing that I'm a very privileged person. And I realized that. And so now it's kind of like making sure that making sure that I'm doing a service to uh, when I talk about other histories, that I'm really doing my best to bring in various voices and various perspectives that are not just mine. And so that's something that, yeah, I struggle with and I try, but I do. What are some tips that you, you Uh, have? Well, you know what? I say we go straight to our guest and, and let him start to help us learn a little bit about, um, what it, what we, it means to, um, talk about race, um, especially in, in today's age. And we'd love to welcome in Jose Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, y'all. We're very excited. You came. Yeah, I'm excited too. Pretty cool. So, Jose, can you tell us just about your background in education? Well, my name is Jose Wilson. I've been teaching in a middle school for about 12 years now. Um, I think I'm capping 12 years this year. And I, by day, I teach students math. So I've been doing that for as long as I've, I possibly could. And then um, 
By night, I also do a whole lot of writing. I do speaking engagements. And I created and founded EduColor, which is an organization dedicated to the uplift and social justice for folks of color and anyone really, but specifically folks of color. So that's been a lot of my work after school, my extracurriculars, if you will. During the day, I teach just like everyone else. Tell us a little bit more about your teaching. What is your, uh, what's your passion for math? Uh, Michael and I are social studies people. That's kind of our But math. we like math. We, I yeah. love triangles and proofs. <laughs> Geometry is my thing. I love it. What, Good. what drew you to the field? What excites you? What, what, is your, what are your days like? For me, it really is a, a social justice platform for me. I mean, I came into the profession specifically because I thought that I could affect change for uh, many, many students. I didn't know how many because, you know, when you come into the profession, they say, if you even just affect one, you've done a good job. And I was just like, yeah, that's great, but I don't want I want to affect more than one. I want to affect like a, a bunch. So to that end, I think I've been pretty effective at doing that based on what my students and my former students have told me over the years. And I think that's what drew me to math more than anything. It was kind of also chosen for me because I graduated with a degree in computer science from Syracuse University. So they said, oh, this guy has a ton of math background, so we can just plop him in and he'll just do the math well. And I was like, I guess. <laughs> so you just were popped in the math world. I was just popped in there. I mean... I, I kind of wanted to do math, but at the same time, it's like, as long as I was teaching students, I was good, you know? Yeah. Did you feel prepared for the teaching part? You had, you know, a nice grounding in the content knowledge side, but was the pedagogy part something that, that came to you pretty quickly, or did you feel like you had to kind of learn on your feet? I still feel like I'm learning how to teach, so <laughs> let's, let's call that out. Um I feel like every day is a new adventure. But when I first came into the profession, I mean, I had some support, sure, but there were definitely times when it was very desolate. I was also very fortunate, too, because even as I was going into this alternative certification program, you know, that sense of going outside of class and then going to meet with friends who were also going through the same journey was very helpful in terms of feeling supported by other colleagues going through the same struggle. I think also, too, I didn't have to learn the culture piece, right? Like, I was already acclimated to what it is to be, you know, Latino in New York City, you know, to be Dominican in Washington Heights. Granted, I hadn't been to the neighborhood like that, but I already had the culture that the students had, and I was already able to acclimate because, I guess, also because of the age gap. I went to the profession when I had just practically graduated out of college. I was only one year removed. So I was already uh, acclimated to the culture. And all I had to do was find out how to actually teach the math and not necessarily teach the students the math. For a lot of teachers, when you have that cultural background, it allows for connections um, with students that can be really meaningful and deep. And for teachers that don't have that same background, it, it, it provides opportunities. I don't think everyone always looks at it as a, an opportunity to learn and grow. But for those teachers that do, it can provide tremendous opportunities. But what advice would you have for teachers who are, who are trying to think, how can I relate to my students and meet them where they're at to kind of help them learn? For me, I feel like it's two pieces. One, you have to be authentically yourself. I know that, especially as of late, and this is no knock on folks who I consider friends in this work, but I don't feel like everyone needs to be doing hip hop education. I don't feel like everyone needs to be doing even rock and roll education, teaching like a pirate, yada, yada. Like there's a lot of this. 
I, I'm not going to say they're gimmicks, but I feel like they're hooks. And I respect the hook because you do need a way to acclimate to the kids' culture. If you're somebody who can actually get into that, that's great. Because the more you can do that, wonderful. However, I've also known, not just from my own personal background, but, you know, I've seen students who gravitate towards the, you know, the rock and rollers when they're more like hip hop, because it's like, oh, this person has their own style and they're very authentic about the way that they approach the work. The students may be interested in you as a person. I think that's important, obviously, but they don't want, they don't necessarily need you to be just like them, (laughs) you know, um, they just want to, they really want to know whether or not you actually care about them and their education. I think that's a critical piece. Secondly, I also feel like there's this idea of what I would call the warm demanders. I mean, there are, there's studies on that that suggest that people who are, you know, at, at one end friendly and open and understanding, but at the same time, they are firm about their work. So they don't take themselves as seriously, but they take the work very seriously. I think those are the folks who really reach out, especially to students who are disadvantaged by the school system. And I, I think those things, when you have that combination of somebody who can open themselves up personally in a way, at the same time also give an understanding that, yes, this work is really important and here's why. Those things can really do wonders for any teacher. I can't remember where I first read about the warm demander idea. I feel like it's kind of exemplified some in Gloria Ladson Billings, The Dream Keepers, if I remember right. And she you know, provided examples of successful African-American teachers and what wisdom can we glean from them. And I remember just kind of that being striking because I came from a middle class white family. And when I got into the classroom, like I feel like my parents' method of, of talking to me about about decisions in our family was always this kind of like, we had these like little discussions where they'd be like, well, Dan, do you want to do this? And we discuss it. And like, I realized real quickly how like that did not, that was not the best method in the classroom. Like you don't ask someone in a class of 30 kids if they want to do something. And some kids think it's a real question, not like a, I'm trying to tell you to do this, but I'm doing it by asking a question. And so part of that's cultural. Then part of that is just like probably ineffective pedagogy. And so that first you had to learn how to be direct, you know, and how to just look at a kid and be like, hey, I need you to do this right now. okay?" And it's because I care about you. I don't have to say that, but I'm telling you with my eyes, I care about you. Do it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so funny, too, because those are those are the um, parents that I'm kind of worried about, especially at the mall or in public places where. You know, you have the child who just acts up. And, of course, me as a person of color, I'm looking at that situation like, uh, my mom would never tolerate that. I would have gotten smacked. I mean, <laughs> those are things that like we have to consider, too. So, yeah, it's great that there's, you know, this culture of power that suggests that certain students are going to get questions and some are going to get directions. So <laughs> that's something that I think a lot of us need to negotiate, too. Right. So right. I, I'm very curious about that. Jose, so you wrote a book called This Is Not a Test, A New Narrative on Race, Class, and Education. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about why you wrote the book and and what your message was in it? This Is Not a Test, A New Narrative on Race, Class, and Education was basically a dedication to the everyday teacher. I felt like when I walked into Barnes & Noble, and I walked into Barnes & Noble a hell of a lot, especially in uh, Union Square, I I would see all these titles of different books and more often than not, it was teachers who had only taught for maybe a year or two. It was um, education experts. And then, um, of course, you'd also have like these pundits from all over the place. I mean, 
anybody felt like they could write a book about education without actually talking about the teaching profession. And of course, I want to do it from a sensibility of this is what it's actually like. These these are the nuances of it. And here, come follow me, me in my shoes and come see the way that I work and do it from a perspective of a teacher who actually stayed in the classroom. Uh, I think during the era that I published the book, um, I would say if you had 10 education books that were written by teachers, about nine of them had left and I was the only one who stayed. So that was a really big deal for me to actually be that teacher who actually stayed after the story was over. I think another part two of it, of course, is that you know I, I was trying to target the general public because I also felt like, yeah, like, you know, you have the dying ravages of the world. You have all these other folks who are able to get their message out. And I'm, again, very happy for them. But there was something missing, which was like, this is what it looks like to actually go through the paces. And we have to find a way for teachers to actually elevate their voice in a way that suggests that we are experts and we're not waiting for somebody else to tell us what to do, even if it's somebody who's actually empathetic towards our cause. It's interesting. You speak a lot about authenticity, and it feels like that that was what you're looking for in your book. And it's necessary, right? Because how how many times do we watch TV special on it's like I feel like oh my gosh that's n- nothing like what I do or um, it always know. makes me really sad. I feel like a terrible teacher every time I see a teacher movie. Yes, yes. Either you feel really terrible, you feel like oh I'm not that bad. Like there was the the bad teacher movie. I'm like wait a minute if we need more representation. Like I wouldn't feel bad about a bad teacher movie. If there was like the so-so teacher, there was like the complicated teacher. Like I feel like Boston public, for example, did a very good job. I don't know if y'all watched that back in the day. Oh, I watched it. It was a good show. Yeah, it was a really good show. It was very well thought out and every character had their complications. I was like, yes, that's, that's kind of what you want to go for. But there aren't many shows that go for that because it feels like, of course, you know, with Bill Gates and, um, um, having their way with pretty much everything when it comes to teachers for the last 15 years. I feel like we don't really get that nuanced story. We're not getting that. Um, and so teachers need to be the ones to create it. We've actually talked a lot about that on our podcast because in the public, there seems to be these really binary narratives. You're a good teacher or you're a bad teacher and you're born that way or you're not. And it's you just don't see the complexity for you know teacher growth over time. And of course, everything's you know reduced to some test scores but then even in the movies like i mean the white savior movies the the narrative is you know this teacher comes in they're a rebel the whole school's terrible they don't have anyone to lean on they save all these kids whatever the situation is and then they leave and they leave the class like that's usually the end they leave the classroom and so there's just it seems like there's very few illustrations of the complexity of teaching yes and i also feel like there's also too many people who, because they've gone to a school, even if you know it's not a public school, even if it's not one of the schools that they're trying to target, because they've gone to a school, they feel like they're an expert at the school. And I think that those are lenses that are worth re-examining, especially for people who, for instance, are our current U.S. Secretary of Education. I mean, feel like we just need people, not just who are experts, but also, you know, have a thoughtful, nuanced process about the way that they approach the work. We had David Berliner on um, a while ago, and I asked him, you know, the whole, like, was it 10,000 hours thing? Yes. If you do, like, 10,000 hours, you should be an expert. And so I was like, well, what about students? They go through 10,000 hours of school. Does that make them an expert? And he said no, because it requires perfect practice. It's 10,000 hours of perfect practice. And so even though you do go to the school, you're not 
knowledgeable in everything about it. Well, and, the, and students are definitely knowledgeable about what they want to be knowledgeable about in school. I, I don't know if I've shared this story on the podcast before, but one of the, actually the smartest things I ever saw the kids do was hack into our school PA system and start checking each other out of their classes. I was like, that's pretty, that takes some talent. <laughs> mm, that's, that's real interesting. I also think too, right? I mean, so in that case, it looks like for us who are teachers who are in spaces that maybe aren't perfect, it's even harder to get those 10,000 perfect practice hours. <laughs> I don't feel like, even in 12 years, I don't feel like I've gotten 10,000 perfect hours. I've gotten 10,000 good hours, perhaps, and some really terrible hours, and that includes this year. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know. See, that's the thing, too, right, about this whole I don't know thing, because I am a National Board Certified Teacher, published author, and people say, oh, you're an expert, you're an authority, great. And I'm still super-duper humble about this work, because, you know, <laughs> th things that happen in our classroom on a daily basis ought to humble us, even if, even if we had a good year overall. I do appreciate it that you yes and did that and not yes butted that being that yes you can work really hard and you can still struggle that's not an either or that's kind of reality that's where we're at I feel is uh, well that's how where I'm at I am absolutely at that right I do good work but sorry and <laughs> I I know it's a tough mindset it's a really tough mindset, uh, but I tr do my best, obviously. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's something that I think as teachers we need to acknowledge in general. What are your perceptions of the kind of the state of race and class in our schools today and, and what things teachers should be kind of talking about, working on, and including in their classroom? I don't think it's all that different from the last century or so. I still feel like the debates over whether or not we ought to test children um, are happening on a on a profound level. I've not so jokingly called a lot of the, the test proponents the new eugenicists, right? So you have all these folks who just constantly want to say test, test, and more test. And I'm very happy for y'all, but then how does that actually help the child grow? And how does that actually help the school improve uh, on a real basis? So you can have, for instance, a school that does very well on test scores, but the kids feel dehumanized. I don't know if I want a school for my child that does that. I would rather them not do as well on tests if I knew that they would get a well-rounded education, including the arts, including science, including like a thorough, thorough history of this country and of the planet, right? Uh, but those are things that unfortunately, they don't come up in the discussions because it, it seems to me like some reformers have caught on to and captured the narrative of what, especially people of color, what they what they supposedly want, right? So I had this one woman in Boston this past weekend, which I was had the pleasure of going to. She told me, you know, back in the day when our schools were segregated, you had you know black teachers, black principal. You had everyone, the community surround this school, and they would actually teach us different um, economic systems like socialism, communism. You know, I myself am a socialist, all because, you know, my teacher was able to, you know, show me different ways of approaching economic systems. But it, these kids, uh, unfortunately, these days, all that's taught is capitalism because of the way that things have been formed, right? And that goes a lot with all the other stuff that's getting taught to them. I'm also curious, too, about 
any sort of structure where you have to share certain facilities, right? So if you have to share a gym, if you have to share um, art spaces, or if you have to share even cafeterias, like it doesn't feel like children often get enough space. It's in places where they ought to have more space. Um, the rec centers that used to be up are getting deconstructed for more tutoring sites or charter schools where people are getting more and more tests and not enough folks are really focusing on that whole child element. So that's the answer to your first question there. You just got me to thinking about, you know, what is the purpose of education? And I remember in uh, college, one of my mentor, he used to say, there's a lot of different ways of looking at it, but one is that education is either for transmission. That's like the empty vessel thing where we pour in knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another option is transformation. That's the, the schools are like cocoons. Is that where the... (laughs) And they, yeah, they, you become beautiful butterflies. You become the butterfly. Yeah, that's good. And then, and then emancipation, where you are given the skills and knowledge and perspectives to decide for yourself. And I agree, Jose. I mean, there's the debate around what should be taught in a history classroom has been sometimes just absurd. And then, you know, I'm, there's it's an ongoing thing. Like the recently in Arkansas, they wanted to ban Howard Zinn's work, and you have politicians who want to have have a very specific version of their history and the idea of narrowing it to your vision of history I don't I don't understand why anyone would think that's beneficial for a learner for an education absolutely absolutely and it's so funny too because even as a math teacher I do recognize that the science and social studies are the perhaps the two most important topics we have in school period, and yet they are often the most devalued, the former because of the lack of funding. So if you don't pay for microscopes, you don't pay for trips, you don't take kids out of school until past testing season. I mean, those are, th- those are things that are happening in all of our schools. And quick side note too, the fact that even our public schools are becoming less and less public. So what with all the third party vendors and different, I guess, thought processes and schools of thought that are governing our public schools. I mean, how many of our schools are really all that public, right? But then um, going back to this, social studies uh, as the latter, I think, you know, people say, well, you try to stay neutral. You try to stay non-political. I don't think there's a way for you to be non-political. I think there's a way for you to present as many facts as possible and then let people decide. But being non-political is a political choice. One of my favorite quotes is from Howard Zinn, you can't be neutral on a moving train. Yes. Uh, you would love to our um, episode uh, eight with uh, Wayne Jernell, and he talked about teacher political disclosure. Like a lot of that discussion was kind of about like, it's impossible to be objective. Now there's a big difference between being objective and being fair. And um, that that's a big distinction. A very necessary distinction, too. Of course, earlier this year, there was a broad discussion around Colin Kaepernick. And me being who I am, I decided to sit in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. But the health teacher who also teaches in my room for a period of week decided that he would force all the students to stand up for the pledge. And then he told him to sit down. And he said, oh, I think Colin Kaepernick needs to find a different ways and more effective ways of protesting So, of course, you know, I let that simmer for a bit. If you know anything from my Twitter, you know I'm fairly opinionated on certain things. So I waited, and then I pulled him to the side, and I said, so let me ask you a question. Are you going to teach the kids how to protest effectively then? Are you going to show them more effective ways of protesting? Because if not, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, (laughs) And sure enough, that led to a little discussion about, you know, 
how you could be more demonstrative about protests and linking arms, other cool stuff. I mean, that's all very cute. But then how does it actually move politic, right? People keep saying, oh, it was it was done by shaking hands in a very peaceful way. But human history suggests that, no, it's actually a little bit more resistant than that, a little bit more violent or at least uh, uh, more aggressive, whether it's Martin Luther King Jr. or the Black Panther Party, they've had their ways of pushing the agenda. And we need to be more conscientious of the ways that we retell stories. And we would have learned some of those lessons if we didn't sanitize people like Martin Luther King in our public discussions <laughs> and textbooks. And people forget Letter from a Birmingham Jail. So that's everyone's homework today. Go read Letter from a Birmingham Jail and hear what Martin Luther King said. Because... It's a lot of the same stuff people are criticizing and saying he wouldn't say today. Yes. But isn't, yeah. it, isn't it so much easier just to teach the sanitized version of thing, the one-dimensional thing? Doesn't that just make our public discourse much easier if that's how we remember things? I mean, if that's what you think, then when you see people protesting, you're like, well, well, Martin Luther King didn't do that. Well, no, well, really? People tend to like civil rights when they happened in the past. They just, they don't like civil rights in the present. Yes, not so much that they like their heroes dead. Yeah, exactly. Jose, I feel like we've been focusing on social studies. We have drawn you on into a social studies discussion. Is there anything you can tell us about what's happening in math education that around these topics? Are you able to integrate social justice curriculum into teaching math? Well, two things with that. Number one, I've been listening to a lot of Hamilton for the last two or three months. So, um, oh my I goodness. Also, yes. We're like, <laughs> we're like best friends now. You're welcome. I've been reading up on the genius notes too. So it's so interesting seeing all these social studies geeks scream out, Lin-Manuel Miranda took, was it poetic license? I was like, okay, great. Poetic license all over the, the, the place. Yes, because he has to create a narrative for a musical, not that he has to create the book because the book was already written. Well done, social studies geeks. Second, <laughs> secondly, when it comes to math, I'm going to put it to you this way. There are entities within my city who believe that teaching the math is all we need to do. And being able to just teach the math in the way that they suggest, in a way that actually picks up test scores, whatever that looks like, right, is the only way we need to be teaching math. So for me to tell you that I'm trying to integrate social justice into math. This year has been a bit of a struggle because I am pushing back against forces that are larger than I. But having said that too, I've also been very thoughtful about the ways that I do teach math in a way that is subversively empowering to children. So that's kind of my struggle there is how do I get my children to be more thoughtful about the problems that they see in front of them? And then not them being able to self-govern in a way that makes them thoughtful in their math and their lives, period. So that's kind of the strand that I'm looking for because I guess for me, I'm trying to figure out at what point do we get so social justice that we kind of forget, you know, that there's all this math that we have to go figure out that adults haven't figured out yet. So I kind of want, I want my kids to be put in a position where they have as many doors as open to them as possible. And that, yes, they can take whatever tools they have and be able to do pretty much anything with them. So those are things I'm kind of struggling with right now. And yes, I added a whole lot of complexity to that. And you're welcome. (laughs) We're excited about that. Can you give us uh, like an example of to what you, what you mean? For example, I think, the ways that we teach exponents don't necessarily work, 
right? I mean, the way we're teaching any sort of exponential thing kind of just makes it very rule. Like, you can make it very rule-based, right? You can just say, oh, if you see the bases, then subtract this, that, whatever, and that'll be that. But I guess for me, I want to teach students, for example, what the size of the planets are that are around them, and then use the magnitude of their masses to determine which is the larger mass based on scientific notation. And then to what degree they can actually manipulate numbers in scientific notation is often a determinant for me whether or not they're going to do well in algebra-ish when they go to high school and how comfortable and nimble they are with the math. So those are things I'm thinking about right now. But of course, my curriculum does not say I need to be doing planets. My curriculum says I need to be doing exponents and that's it. But it, that's not good enough for me because if the math that's required of them wants them to get to college, but we're only teaching so that they could pass this eighth grade math test, I don't know if that's an equitable thing or not. I would say no. Well, it sounds like, Jose, you're preparing your students to be curious and to be thinkers and to study relevant things in the world, which is what's required for for engaged citizenship, in my opinion. And I think a lot of people's vision of schools, unfortunately, um, you know, the narrow curriculums where it's just about showing specific skills is is really geared towards producing technocrats, you know, who don't really have to think about the moral, ethical or even just creative means of what all of this learning means and it's just about you know filling in bubbles that is correct that is 100 percent correct i mean you know i guess technocracy if you just look at it on the surface it isn't too bad i mean you kind of want to look at data you want to look at information in a way but the way that it's been taken it's just like what are you doing like you're basically making our kids into machines uh, or like vogons yeah that's a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy reference yeah. Uh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I've I read that, but it was like 15 years ago, Michael. I'm a, I missed that one too. <laughs> that's okay. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, you're not, and that's okay too. <laughs> I, at least we know. Going back to earlier, it was authentic, Michael. We know his Jose is actually his handle on Twitter is 42 Think Deep, which is also a Hitchhikers to the Guide reference. So oh, oh okay, so. amazing. Well, Jose, can um, can you tell? So, if you just had advice for teachers, just the wisdom you've gained over your twelve years in the classroom and your continual, um, just you know, prodding and thinking on what it means to be a great teacher. What what advice do you have? Jeez, what it means to be a great teacher. Well, I think for one, um, we should always think about what we demand of our students and whether we de- we would demand it of us, right? So. Having thoughtful, reflective children would often require thoughtful, reflective adults. And we need to find ways to consistently model that for our children, uh, whether that be in our own personal time when we're on Twitter or on blogs or listening to podcasts that, you know, have gone around around 50 times or whatever, you know. Um, whoop, whoop. And the right, whoop, whoop. Being thoughtful about our practice and, you know, not necessarily beating ourselves up when we don't meet our high expectations. So we set that high bar, and if we get there, great. But if we don't, uh, it's, we have another day to try again. And as long as you build those relationships with students that are authentic and 
thoughtful and caring. And, you know, you also have to be firm, too. But if you build those, I think you get another chance to try again the next day. And if you don't want to build those relationships, then it's going to be harder and harder for you to be that reflective practitioner that you need to be. That's great advice. Jose, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Of course. Thank you. Jose, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can type Jose Wilson on Google. I'm the first thing up, thejosevilson.com, and on Twitter or Facebook, at the JLV. How can they get involved in the EduColor community? Hashtag EduColor on Twitter. Uh, we also have a website, EduColor.org. We've now upgraded to about two times a, a month for our newsletter. So if you want to get the latest and greatest, sign up for our newsletter as well. And we have a chat that happens every last Thursday of the month, holidays notwithstanding. So that's us. All right, great. We really do appreciate all the work you're doing and just you know joining us and sharing your perspective. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. Thanks. So at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something creative in education or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. You can also like us on Facebook. And of course, if you haven't already, and really, what are you waiting for? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And a bonus if you sign up your friend. And if you write us a five-star review, we'll read it on the air. We do appreciate it because it helps people find this podcast. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. Peace.